Hi, I'm Dave Westberg, and you're listening to the Billboard Insider Podcast, where I interview industry leaders about trends impacting the U.S. out-of-home advertising business. This podcast is sponsored by Adomni. Adomni, list your digital billboard on Adomni and increase your revenue. Today's guest is Steve McNeely, Managing Partner for Tantara Capital Partners. Steve has 29 years experience investing and working in the out-of-home business. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Steve, you have worked in several industry sectors. How did you get involved in out-of-home? Well, it was almost by accident. It was by accident. As you said, in the beginning, I've been in private equity 30 years almost and had done several deals in and around with various private equity firms and had gotten recruited to GE Capital to help them in a automotive services group that ultimately turned around and sold to Cox. When that transaction consummated, GE Capital had financed probably the largest outdoor transaction in the history to that point in time. John Kluge was selling his Metro Media assets, Foster and Kleiser, based in Los Angeles. And it was the same time that he was selling, you know, the Metro Media television and radio, which became later Fox. And the ultimate purchaser of the Foster and Kleiser assets was a, a gentleman in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Jerry Joyce. And he was financed ultimately by GE Capital. And at that time, uh, it was a, a very substantial number, which accreted even later to almost a billion dollars. Which wow. In today's time, yeah, that's a big number. That's a big number, yeah. Things didn't go so well in that transaction. The company was moved from Los Angeles to Scranton, Pennsylvania. It was renamed, giving up the Foster and Kleiser legacy name and changed to Patrick, which was Jerry's grandfather's name, as I was told. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years, GE basically took the keys back and to try to recoup the bait, as Jack Welch would say, started selling assets. And they had kind of hit a tough spot about as far as they could go. And at that time, they were about a half billion underwater in the deal. So when I decided not to, to stay with the Cox deal, they called me to Scranton, excuse me, first to Fairfield in Scranton and said, you know, come help us with Patrick. And I said, what's a Patrick? <laughs> but that's how I got into it. The sidebar of that, though, too, is back in when I was in a corporate career, I basically was responsible for worldwide advertising and marketing for Exxon Corp, which really had the advertising bug bite, bringing the live tiger back to the U.S. and, and stuff like that. So I had kind of had advertising in my blood, just had never done it uh, on billboards, except one of my first assignments at Exxon was buying a whole slew of billboards to do a marketing test. And that's where I really fell in love with it. But, you know, long story short, we turned around Patrick and, Ended up selling it, which is now, as everyone knows, the Clear Channel plant. So, Steve, what was the problem at Patrick, and how did you turn it around? <laughs> the problem was the operating model, so to speak, and trying to make the transition from running a, a plant, no offense, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, to taking over the largest outdoor operator in the space. I think Washington Pleasure was, was bigger than Lamar then. Sure, it wasn't, but much bigger than Gannett, too. Wow. And that was just a challenge that couldn't be overcome. And then, you know, other issues popping up, being over-levered, having an aggressive lender, a lot of things going on. But, you know, what happened with us in terms of, quote, turning it around was trying to be innovative and going from a, a billboard operator to a media operator. And 
I don't mean to degrade the term billboard because that's their bread and butter, mm-hmm. but that was our mantra. In fact, we kind of had a little game. If you said, you know, we're a billboard company, you got fined mm. because we had to go out and really develop locations where you couldn't get a traditional billboard. And that's what really got us into transit, street mm-hmm. furniture, and things like that. So, and that's when we started looking at trying to develop alternate products. Like, you know, you had a piece last week about premier panels. Well, we started doing that in 1992 in Los Angeles, taking stack or side-by-side poster panels and wrapping them in vinyl. Mm-hmm. And no one else was really using vinyl then. And I remember going to one of my first outdoor advertising meetings and you know, talking about this thing that John Kluge had brought to the market through Metro Media Technologies called vinyl. <laughs> and we decided we'd do it, and we did. And we reduced our paint costs by probably a fourth, no, by 75%. Wow, wow. It was, you know, just kind of blogging and tackling, mm-hmm. really developing a, a national sales presence. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was kind of funny to me was the OAAA had two board seats at the Ad Council, and nobody wanted them. Wow. The executive director or CEO, which at that time became Nancy Fletcher, I said, hey, you know, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. And that was like kind of going to a smallest board with your advertisers. Yes, yes. In, in the room. And then we said that we had brought somebody on to be our EVP of sales and marketing, Bill Wardell, who formerly ran an agency in New York. And we left him in New York. That was kind of innovative. What, what, what a shock, Steve. Put your salesperson where the clients are. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, Bill and I looked at each other and said, whoa, whoa. You're on the Ad Council board. Let's go to the Association of National Advertisers, the ANA. Yes. All yes. clients. Well, let's get an invitation to the forays. We did that. So we started making those regular circuits, you know, kind of fish where the fish are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a lot of success with it. We had a good team, a great team. Terrific. Now, you went on after successfully helping GE exit that investment. You went on to do a string of financial engineering of transactions. You helped put together the GTCR Adams Purchase of Fairway, and then last July, you assisted Blackbird Media in purchasing the iconic CNN sign in Atlanta. Talk about that transaction. What interested you in it? Let me go on. One other thing I, I just forgot about, the, the Patrick deal, which you know we kind of smile when we think about it. Mm-hmm. In 1992, 93, uh, the person that was running Southern California, George Maniac and his team, McGrath and the guys, we started doing geocoding of our poster and bulletin plant then. We sent our guys out with the Magellans that sailors use, mm-hmm. longitude and latitude for every structure that we had. Then we bought demographic and psychographic data and plotted it on top of that. So wow. if Hormel Chile or Hormel wanted to sell Chile to the Hispanic community at Bond stores in Southern California, boom, you knew where to, to buy the plant. And away you went. And that's essentially what we're doing today with a lot of the programmatic things that we're trying to do. Anyway, you know, I give the guys in, in Southern California all the credit for that, but that was a, wow. a game changer. Well, let's roll forward to Blackbird. Yeah, sure. What interested you there? You know, as digital has made its transformation and iconic signs have, you know, really raised the profile for advertisers and, and operators both. A gentleman, Chenault Sanders, I think you did an interview with him mm-hmm. maybe a year ago now, who first... His family had developed the Nashville sign, yes, which is like a 35 by 35 digital in a prime location in, in Nashville, Tennessee. 
and Chenault was a lawyer by trade, decided to develop this property and kind of learned it the hard way with bootstraps, listening to everybody tell him what he could and couldn't do, mm-hmm. but he did it. Mm-hmm. So the degree of the Nashville sign, he developed it through social media to a large degree, where it now has you know, 10,000 Facebook followers, which is wow. like for a billboard. Wow. Yeah. Kind of crazy. But the introduction was made to Chanel. I spent some time with him on the phone, and he just really got it. And he was, you know, trying things that, as I said, people said, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. But he did, mm-hmm. including the the rate and the way he marketed the side and creating a, a real presence in the national community and making it a community asset all the way from the historic side of Nashville to the SCPCA to the Country Music Hall of Fame and, and all those things. And he was looking for other opportunities and came upon the CNN side, which CNN had had for, I don't know, 25 plus years as a static unit on the south end of Centennial Park, 30 by 100. And Chenault was looking for advice and a partner to help him, you know, purchase the rights to that side and develop it. So Chenault and I just kind of hit it off. And I just saw a lot of potential there that we could do near the same thing in, in Atlanta that he had done in Nashville. It would be a home run. The mm-hmm. demographics for that location in Atlanta were exceptional, and there was no competition essentially. I mean, sitting there in proximity to the Mercedes Dome, State Farm Arena, College Football Hall of Fame, Centennial Park, I and mean, on and on and on. So, and uh, and am I right, Steve? That is in that that area, the Atlantic Sign District, where they're trying, they're encouraging people to do interesting things with signs. They want to create some energy, some buzz, not unlike Times Square. No, exactly. And, you know, we've been in touch with them, too, to, you know, maybe put full motion on, on that sign and maybe even make it bigger, which they pretty much endorse both those. But it's, again, it's becoming working with the community and same thing, you know, Hollywood has done in, in their sign districts as well and making it, you know, the Times Square of the South or, or whatever. Yes, isn't that right? You know, we, we a lot of communities, they are very dismissive. I don't want our city to become like Las Vegas. Well, do you want your city to become like the sign district in Atlanta or to become like the area around the Baltimore art sign or to become like there's a way to use signs to create energy and a real vibrancy in, a, in an urban environment? No, that's exactly the, the key point. And, and there's ways to develop it in a tasteful, supported, complementary way. And then there's sticks in the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's how the industry got itself in trouble, you know, back in the 80s by giving a Marlboro or a Camel ad, putting a go to a bank, get a loan, put a stick in the ground. Yes. Uh, and that was what it was. So, no, you're exactly right. And the smart community developers and planners and doing these sign districts have realized that, that, hey, they could be very attractive. And as Chanel did in, in Nashville, you did do a community service. I mean, he was giving away space to the Historic Society and, as I said, the SPCCA, putting up the Adopt-A-Pet, which later became sponsored by Tito's Vodka because Mr. Tito is a big dog lover. So it's just, you know, you, yeah, a great story. It's a win-win, though. He's contributing. He's generating money. Yeah. He's contributing to yeah. the communities, building goodwill. The sign is becoming... Uh, part of surprise and delight is performing a useful function in the city, which is part of the fabric of a community. And it's become a a commercial success right out of the box. I mean, people said you can't get that, and, you know, Chenault, to his credit, did, like Mm -hmm. he did in Nashville. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we want to continue that model in in other municipalities that, you know, this is another aspect of 
what a lot of other people are doing as well is, you know, instead of having, you know, 10,000 conventional leases out there, you know, have 10 digital leases in high profile areas that, you know, you can manage effectively and be an economic success as well. So we're very pleased with it. Very, mm-hmm. very, very pleased with Correct. the results and looking for more opportunities in the Atlanta market, which is still has some spots as well as some other kind of metro areas. Not really interested in going to, you know, a New York or L.A. or someplace like that, but or Vegas, but, you know, other places that present an opportunity in the, in the emerging markets. Let's take a break here for a word from our sponsor. By listing your billboards on Adomni's buying platform, agencies and advertisers can easily find and buy your unsold billboard space. Adomni's Audience IQ technology allows advertisers to target consumer profiles that travel past your billboards with audience segments such as demographics, behavior, and consumer interest. Join the fastest-growing out-of-home network with over 100,000 digital screens. Whether you have a Formetco, Watchfire, Dectronics, or PrismView billboard, Adomni is easy to connect. Visit Adomni.com or email sales at Adomni.com to learn more. Mention this Billboard Insider podcast to receive one free year of Adomni's white-labeled booking engine on your website. Steve, what's the future like for independent operators? That's a good question. I think their future has never been brighter is they take advantage of, you know, the technology that's there has been presented to themselves, of them learning to, to kind of move with the next generation. There's some excellent independent operators, and I give the Independent Operators Association a lot of credit for, you know, bringing the independents together so, you know, they can start taking advantage of whether it's group buying or group benefits or they're making themselves known. And I think, but I think it's equally important that, you know, while you have the independence over here and the OAAA, that people say, well, that's just the big guy. Well, it's not. The OAAA does a phenomenal job of representing every operator across America. So it's extremely important that, you know, the independent association and the OAAA work closely together because it's, they're both advantages. So I think it's, it's great. I think there's a lot of attention to some of the, larger independence from the uh, the private equity side, and that, that will continue to grow. Mm-hmm. You're a professional equity investor. What do you think of Lamar? What do I think of Lamar? I think yep. Lamar's a great company. I've, you know, I got to know Kevin, Sean's brother, when, when he was running it, and even Kevin Sr. I got to just the tail end of his group. Lamar's just a, a great, interesting family company that's very successful and Sean may not agree, but mostly in the secondary and tertiary markets and looking at local advertising and, you know, the blocking and tackling. I mean, how can you fault their financial success? I mean, up today, I think they're trading at 94, 95 bucks, mm-hmm. doubled in like five years. Probably interesting to, to maybe do a split because they hadn't done a split in probably over 20 years, 20, 22, 23 years, something like that. You look at their operating margins, return on equity. The dividend yield, they got their management or debt under control. Mm-hmm. My hat's off to Sean and his team. And they've taken a real, real aggressive with their digital effort, mm-hmm. digital and I'll call it programmatic for lack of a better word, but that word is so misused. Mm-hmm. They've done a, a nice job there too. How about out front? Out front, you know, the big three are, are like totally three different, in my opinion, totally mm-hmm. three different operations and operators, and they've been through a lot. You know, I kind of know the, the legacy behind the, the Clear Channel side because that was our plan at one time. But, mm, mm. you know, they, they've been forced to go into to different directions. And, you know, that was the Artie Marino Bill Levine plant that 
grew up through, you know, Viacom and then CBS and, and this. But, I mean, there's kind of like three different peas in a pod. Jeremy, I think, has had some record quarters. He's taken an entirely different approach with his local national mix, chosen to go into the transit business in the more major metropolitan areas and looking to focus, as I understand it, on more of the top 25 markets. But, you know, you can't argue with, with his success either. They're trading at a 52-week high right now as well. Good margins, obviously not as good as Lamar's because you got the transit business and those type of contracts, which are road, but, you know, it's a great company. How about Clear Channel Outdoor? Clear Channel's a, a different bird. You've got out front that's, you know, focusing on the metropolitan, the transit, got rid of their international division. you got Lamar that, you know, is more of the, the local focus and dabbles in some of the transportation. Then you got Clear Channel that, you know, is kind of stuck in the middle in some respects. And I'm probably more familiar with their plant just because of, you know, that was the predecessor, or Patrick was the predecessor plant to what's now, now Clear Channel. But I got a lot of phone calls when they were going through their reorganization. You know, what should we do? And my consistent comment was, you know, you guys should hold on to this thing for 18, 24 months, try to fix it, get your margins up, sharpen it, organization sharpen. Uh, I would sell the international group in a heartbeat, just like Outfront did. But there's a solid backbone there. It's a thriving U.S. business and a struggling international business. And, you know, EchoShare says it's diversified. Well, you know, the market will never pay you to do what <laughs> someone can do for themselves. If I want to be diversified internationally, I'll just buy international out-of-home stocks. I, I don't have to have Clear Channel Outdoor diversify for me. So I, I couldn't agree more. Get rid of the international business. It's a distraction. China is killing results. You don't have yep. rule of law overseas, and the stock would rally. Yep, you're, you're, you're spot on. I don't call it diversification. I call it a dilution and yeah. exposure Yeah, would be my two words for it. It's a great U.S. business, too. It's a good U.S. business. Oh, yes. Well, that's the point I was about to make. They were for so long wrestling, or as I call it, with one hand tied behind their back. Yes, you know, yes. Being part of iHeart, and you know, I think as I've mentioned to you a couple of times and others, you know, Clear Channel was the iHeart piggy bank. It was. And they just kept taking the hammer to it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a tough business to run. Mm-hmm. Tough business to run in, in that mode. No, a lot of good people, a lot of good markets. Just, you know, fix it. Yes. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> that brings us to Link Media and Boston Omaha. They're an interesting company. I mean, it's just kind of like the the two guys that they founded it. They're kind of taking the Warren Buffett model, whether they think that's a compliment or not. You know, and, and investing in, in long-term strategy and, and cash-rich businesses and out-of-home high margins and dependable cash flows to to complement their their insurance and finance business. You know, it's hard to from looking at their public numbers. It's some kind of hard to get a, a real read on it, but. They're in a, an entirely different league than either Adams or, or some of the other larger players, as you know, as Jimmy uh, McLaughlin was trying to build it out. Now Scott is mm-hmm. trying to build it out. But they're, they're an interesting regional player. They made some fair, well, when they bought the weight acquisition, that was very sizable for them at that time. Yes. And then we've got Standard Outdoor, the subsidiary of Standard Diversified. It appears to me they are going to be spun off. They own an insurance company, Standard Diversified, a vaping company, and an outdoor company. And the insurance, New York Insurance Commissioner, seems to be going after them to liquidate because it doesn't want an insurance company allied with a vaping company. That's my take. 
and the out of home company's stuck in the mix. So what do you think will happen there? Well, they're a tobacco company too. Oh, <laughs> tobacco, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I'm just kind of scratching my head on that one still. I mean, they were what, 350, 400 faces, and then they bought the last two fairway markets that, you know, added another 3,500 3, or so, 3,500, 3, Yes. to that. And I'm just still kind of scratching my head as to why they did it. And, yeah, will they be around? Will somebody just, you know, buy the outdoor group out of standard and, and really use that as a platform, which, you know, that could be a smart move. Mm-hmm. It could be a very smart move. They get some good assets. Which brings me to Adams, now that it's spun off, and now that most of the fairway assets have been spun off, what do you think is the future for Adams, and will it ever become a REIT? You know, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I've known Kevin forever. Well, since my first days in, in outdoor, and we became friends and have remained friends since then. And as you said earlier in the, the podcast, you know, when the fairway assets came to the market, I reached out and talked with Kevin and Steve, and then we brought GTCR in to put those together to cool, create the fourth largest Adams and Fairway were four or five around. And that was one of our considerations then was, you know, looking at it as a potential REIT longer term. And I can't speak for Steve or Kevin. As you said, it's a private company. They're a strong regional operator like a junior Lamar, so to speak, with some outstanding margins and some outstanding people. And you know, I don't know what Steve's immediate plans are, but REIT would seem to me make sense in providing a liquidation event or a partial liquidation event for himself. But, mm-hmm. you know, that situation changes on a, a regular basis. But, you know, Adams is a great operator. What do family offices and private equity think of out-of-home right now? Well, I mean, except for the high multiples that you're going at, they're in love with it. But, you know, that's the, the biggest issue right now. I mean, if you look at what Lamar is really trading at on mm-hmm. a trailing EBITDA basis, you know, 16, 17, 18. Wow. That's a big number. That's a huge, that's number. A huge yeah. number. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, that just kind of floats through the market. I mean, some of the recent transactions that I've seen, you know, you may find one down in the 7, 8 kind of range. But, you know, there's a reason that it's trading at 7 or 8. Well, typically, they're, they're the 10 to 12 kind of range. So that's the biggest issue with with outdoor and with private equity right now is valuation, especially a lot of the more traditional value-oriented private equity firms that you know are looking for value. Put a double-digit multiple out there, and they just they go bonkers. They just walk away. And those that are accustomed to double-digit multiples, you know, they've almost entirely moved their focus to software and technology where, you know, paying, you know, 15 to 25 is, is not a big deal. There's a kind of a two-edged sword. I mean, if you, you look at private equity and how strong it is, cash flow, margins, CapEx, all the boxes that you check looking at the private equity, it, it checks them all. And even looking at the future, when you're looking at, you know, how it can take advantage of, you know, digitals and the Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z people that, or, or driving or will be driving purchasing habits, it's it's right in there. He look at the change of advertising mix that is attractive, it's killing it, and he will continue to. And people are understanding that, you know, of the traditional media, outdoor is the best complement to any digital or internet, whatever you want to call it, buy. I mean, it's just Nielsen has done studies and everyone else has done studies that just prove it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great fit. People can get their head around the multiples. You know, there are big folks out there. Am, am I right? There's also a bit of a scale issue 
So there, yeah. you know, I count that there are more than 500 independent out-of-home companies in the U.S. The problem is, if I'm a private equity player, and what are we looking at? A minimum equity investment of 20 million. I want to put a lot of money to work. There are very, very few companies that I can buy and deploy my funds. Very few independent out-of-home companies. They're mostly very, very small. You're exactly right, and that's the the other kind of box to check. And I, if I run into say I. You get over all the other hurdles. Well, it's too small. Yeah. Well, there's other opportunities. Well, it's the chicken and the egg then. I mean, I just worked on a recent deal with somebody and they, that you're exactly right. They wanted to write, you know, a minimum of a $50 million check. Wow. Which means, you know, $100 million transaction. Or if you even get down to writing a $25 million check, it's a $50 million kind of transaction. So it's uh, the chicken and the egg. And, you know, they really don't want to say, okay, I've got – acquisition target A ready, but I got B, C, and D, you know, kind of right behind me to work on. And I said, no, what if this don't happen? We're stuck. But it's, you know, it's the same work for a big transaction as a little one. And, and that's what they're geared to do. So, yeah, that is a, an issue. What's happening, though, is there have been a lot of new funds created with less capital committed, which opens up the door for the smaller deals and maybe getting in. And they are more hungry to put capital to work. Hmm. And they're going to start emerging in some of these markets. I'm, I'm talking with somebody right now, not in outdoor, but in radio mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. a small deal. But, you know, radio has the same issue. There's a lot of little plants, little local markets out there that ripe for consolidation. So I think my other sense in this in terms of hope for expansion is the debt markets for out-of-home companies are as good as I've probably ever seen in 30 years of lending. Yeah. There are a lot of banks that have strong balance sheets that have gone, you know, we've gone 10 years since the last recession, and they're willing to take a flyer on out-of-home, where that was not always the case. Yeah, no, you're right. And out-of-home doesn't suffer the, the issues and the problem that the broadcast folks did, especially radio. Yes. Transition there, over-levered and bankruptcies and everything else, so people don't want to get near radio. Steve, what does the out-of-home industry need to do better to attract more of the U.S. ad spend? You know, I think they're doing, they're headed in the right direction in terms of the focus on the digital. You know, I was out of out of home for a while and I missed the old AAA meeting for, I don't know, 10 years or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I first went back, you know, I, I pulled somebody aside. I think I was, I was talking to Kevin. Yeah. And I said, you know, they have the same, same questions that we had 10 years ago. They haven't done anything about it. Wow. Wow. And, you know, that's really, you know, kind of making, they have, I mean, that's not yes. a fair comment totally, but. They need to work better together. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, I mean, God bless them, the, the big three, they all have their way of going to market and digital. They need to, and everybody wants to beat their own drum. Mm-hmm. But guys, work together. Get a common platform, and hopefully Anna can, can bring some focus on that. Mm-hmm. But, and the other thing is everybody's kind of got their panties in a water over programmatic. Well, programmatic and digital buying are two different things, and mm. people don't seem to understand that. Programmatic will never be what it is in the dishes. I saw, saw something the other day that's, what, 63% or something like that? Correct. Yeah, correct. Of digital displays are bought by, I don't know what the definition of digital display. I mean, it's a little screen, it's you know, your phone or it's whatever, or programmatic. But that's a big number. Now, that, my guess, outdoors probably 5%, maybe. Mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm. Can out of home ever get from five up towards sixty, or do you do you not see that happening? You know, you know, everybody 
says, I want to control my inventory. Yes. And, you know, you, you can work around that and, and get that. And I want to control my pricing. And I don't want to be, but I feel some, a little bit of old school there because mm-hmm. you know, back in the day you had a rate card and you gave people rate cards whether you sold it that or not was uh, whatever. But you got to kind of work around that. But the industry's got to kind of coalesce around the way to buy. Mm-hmm. People are doing a much better job now in, in audience measurement. I praise the day that they changed the name from the Traffic Audit Bureau. Yes, yes. Geopath. I mean, it, it's had to happen. As, as Kim said in her speech, traffic is not good. Audit is not good. <laughs> Bureau is not good. No, no, you're right. <laughs> so you're over three. <laughs> Steve, tell our listeners how you brought the B-2 Stealth Bomber to the Indianapolis <laughs> Motor Speedway. How did you know about that? Anyway. <laughs> I was, I was an Air Force pilot, and I also, when I got out, decided that I, I had a latent need for speed. So I went to a driving school, race car driving school, and thought, hey, this is fun, but it's kind of boring. So we kind of took it up a notch, and long story short, I ended up driving endurance racing professionally for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, something like that, Daytona 500, Sebring 12, and then became really friendly with some folks who were doing IndyCar. So the people in my wedding were IndyCar drivers. Wow. So they, they just kind of, and then met another, two other gentlemen that had just had formed a charity called Racing for Kids. We're in our 32nd year now, something like that. Wow. And do hospital visits at all IndyCar venues. So they just kind of all coalesced. And so top it all off, about four years ago, the B2 had been starting to do the flyover at the Rose Parade, Rose Bowl. And one of the, the base commanders, the general, was sitting in front of me, and I introduced myself, and hey, former Air Force, and Bob, we were talking and, and, and had lunch together a little bit later, and I said, you know, you guys ought to be flying this the stealth over the Indianapolis 500, the most patriotic city and event in the country on Memorial Day. And he said, well, yeah, that's a great idea. How do we do that? Can we do huh. it? Wow. Said, yeah. Said, I'll help you. Wow. <laughs> so got my friends at, at Indy and then uh, back and, and we got it done. I've become actually really good friends with, I don't know, about 15 or 20 of the B2 pilots when they come out here now and I help them do their uh, inaugural flyover in Austin at Coda when they, they started that race a year ago. Interesting fact, there's only 20 B2 still, there were only 21, one crashed in Guam. Hmm. They cost a billion two each, and they don't belong to the Air Force. They belong to us as taxpayers as a national asset, which I thought was interesting. But their longest mission, one of my friends did it, was 48 hours in the air, nonstop. Oh, my. 48 hours. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. They're, they're an amazing group of men and women. In fact, the first person that helped us do the, the Indy flyover was a female pilot. And, and quite the accomplished young lady, she was a STEM recipient scholarship in college went on from there but they're just a fine group of people i mean just couldn't say nicer things about them we're trying to go back to indy this year and hopefully coda this year and but i just enjoy helping them well that's all for this week thanks for appearing on the show steve my pleasure dave this podcast was edited by lucas jones and sponsored by adomni adomni list your digital billboard on adomni and increase your revenue You can listen to episodes of the Billboard Insider podcast by visiting billboardinsider.com or by subscribing to the Billboard Insider podcast on iTunes or any of the usual podcast outlets. Our email is billboardinsider at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in a couple weeks.